Amen. Thank you so much, Pastor Mike. Good morning, everyone. Great to see you, be with you today. Thank you for being here. Uh, if you would, get out your Bible and turn with me to Exodus 14. That's where we'll be today. And parents, uh, if you have kids up through fifth grade and would like for them to go to age-specific teaching, that's offered now out in the patio. If not, of course, fine to have them uh, stay here. We um, are going to have uh, a baptism and do some more singing later in the gathering. We've pushed those to the end because as we walk through our passage today, you'll see that we will be, in a sense, reenacting the very things we see in the passage today in a way that only God could have put together. So it should be a wonderful morning uh, together as we partake of God's Word. Uh, this sermon will be a bit of a fire hose, so it might be one you need to jot some notes down and go back to. We're going to cover a lot of ground. I hope it will enrich not only your morning, but your full uh, week. Last Sunday, Josh helped us take the very first steps with God's people as they began to leave the cities of Egypt and head towards the Sinai wilderness. Pharaoh and the Egyptians had let them go, and so in haste, they grabbed all that they could, and they headed out. And a massive group of people, nobody's sure exactly how many, but a huge group of people are headed out on foot, belonging in tow, headed for the promised land, where they would be free from Pharaoh and now free to serve God in the promised land. As we turn to chapter 14, there's something about God that I hope you'll notice. And I'm going to really do the very best I can to make it evident the way this works throughout the Bible. God, in a way not dissimilar to us, God has habits. He has an MO. He has things he goes back to and does again and again and again. They're his, his customs, his patterns, his character leads him to do certain things repetitively. In our passage today, we'll see one of his favorite go-tos emerge really for the first time. And we'll see the way it happens over and over and over in his scripture and continues even to today. It is what we might consider the defining mark of how God works. Watch for it as we study today. Look with me at verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-ha-hiroth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They're wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and all the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed towards the people. And they said, what is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made him ready his chariot and took his army, and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he pursued the people while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them 
and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and all his horsemen and his army, he overtook them and encamped at the sea by Pahahiroth in front of Baal Zephon. You try saying that. <laughs> so, imagine with me if you would, Moses has his iPhone in hand and Siri is directing him. The quickest, safest route out of Egypt, very likely to the southeast down into the Sinai Peninsula. But all of a sudden, it's not God's voice, it's not uh, Siri's voice that Moses hears, it's God's voice. And God says, detour ahead. He tells them, in essence, turn around and go what would have been back northwest, back the opposite direction. He reroutes them and tells them to camp for the night between Migdal and the sea. Now that doesn't mean absolutely anything to us, but it's the opposite way of the way they had been going. It's a way that doesn't make sense that they would go. Because there were such a large group of people, it would have been really obvious where they were, even in the ancient world where there was, of course, no iPhones, no drones, no satellite imagery. But as at least hundreds of thousands, if not in the millions, are wandering around in the desert now, everybody knew where they were. And so as Pharaoh got word, they were going this way and now they're going that way and now they're trapped by the sea on the one hand and the desert on the other, he naturally assumed they're lost. They don't know where they're going. And in his hardness of heart, he decided, I've made a huge mistake. And so he readied the army and headed out to slaughter the Israelites. In his fury, he called the generals, ordered them to mount the chariots and assemble the cavalry, and out they went. Their goal might have been to capture some, but it would certainly have been to kill many. Egypt was the world's superpower at this time. They had an astronomically large army. And the, the chariots of the ancient world were the drones of today. They offered protection for the one leading the assault and certain slaughter for the people on the other end. The Israelites have set up camp by the Red Sea, but they're facing backwards. Let me see. This way. They're facing southwest. So they've got the sea behind them, and they're setting up for the night looking this way because that's what God told them to do. They're hot, tired, sweaty, but happy. I mean, they're... They're not slaves of Pharaoh anymore. So they might be a little miffed. What, what is Moses doing? But they're free, free to serve God. And so they set up camp under God's good governance. But then somebody notices way out in the distance, there's this brownish hue. And no one's quite sure what it is, but 
Slowly, slowly, that hue gets larger and larger and larger. Have you ever been on the, one of the highways around here when a haboob's coming in? And it, just way out, you see this huge yuck. That's what they would have seen. And then these little tiny things emerge. They look like ants just scurrying everywhere. And not long after, to their horror, they realize that's, those are Egyptian soldiers headed their way. And that hue is caused by the 600-plus chariots. And soon the ground begins to shake. Behind them is the sea. Ahead of them is the army. They're sitting ducks. They have no swords, no clubs, no chariots, no, nor, nor horses. I mean, they could mount up on their goats if they wanted, but that's all they've got. They've got nothing, nothing. And so how will God's people respond to this ridiculous situation? Look at verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, is it because there's no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? See the irony there? course there's graves in Egypt. That's what the Egyptians are known for. All their fanfare about death. What have you done in bringing us out of Egypt? Is it, is it not that we said to you back in Egypt, leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. On the one hand, their response makes sense. They're out Numbered, outgunned, and humanly speaking, they have zero chance of making it through this. I mean, there's nothing they can do. But on the other hand, hasn't God proved himself? Hasn't God demonstrated his resources are endless, his commitment is total, and he is in fact going to take care of them? Has he not shown that? Isn't it reasonable to think if God just did all that for us, hmm, maybe he'll do it again. But no, they gave themselves to fear. The redeemed people thought not. Isn't that how fear works? Fear arises out of spiritual amnesia. It is an irrationality, a vain stupidity, a short memory of what God has done in the past, somehow thinking he won't do it again in the present. Fear is the antithesis of faith. In the face of Pharaoh's show of force, they've forgotten what God's done for them, who God is, and whose they are. 
And so they tremble in fear. Now, how does God respond to the faltering of those who he has already rescued? That's an important question. And I would submit to you, it's a question that applies to you and to me and to us. Because we too are people who have been redeemed and we too will falter. So what does God do when that happens? Verse 13, Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. The Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff. Stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so they will go in after them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots, his horsemen. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Under God's decree, Moses commands. He commands the most famous, most popular, most frequent command in the Bible. Fear not. Fear not. Not because it's somehow irrational to fear. Not because there wasn't a legitimate reason to fear. But because there's only one place fear is properly placed. In God. So he said, don't fear. Stand firm. See. And I love verse 14. It's astonishing. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to shut your mouth. Listen. Quit complaining. Listen. Despite their horrendous failure to trust God, the Lord declared he'd fight for his people anyway. Isn't that what he does for you when you fail him? Their job? What was their contribution to their salvation? Watch. Listen. Be an observer of the power of God. That's it. You don't contribute anything else to your salvation. Watch. Listen, marvel, get redeemed again. This is what God does. This is what God commands. It's incredible. There is no other religion like this. This gives us such a great picture of not only the beginning, but every minute of every day of every Christian life. Now, how specifically would this salvation come? Moses is to stretch out his hands 
and God says he'll divide the sea. Let's read on and watch as it actually happens. Verse 19. Then the angel of God who was going before the hosts of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud in the darkness, and it lit up the night, without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night, and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, and the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea. All Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down in the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from them before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, and that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And the Egyptians fled into it, and the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus, the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So that fear that they had had, look where it is now. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. This is among the most astonishing events in human history. Now, if you're wired like me and seem to be a bit skeptical, I've never seen anything like that either. This is not typical. This isn't ordinary. God, in a supernatural way, chose to do something that people thousands of years later are still talking about. When Moses' arms are outstretched, notice it says an east wind came. They're on the west side. That means they had to watch as that sea slowly parted and as the Egyptians came barreling toward them. God has a way of coming through when it feels like it's the very last possible moment. Little by little, that sea began to part, and with Pharaoh's army barreling ahead, the sea divided in two. God opened it, 
pulling up land, making a way for deliverance into new life for his people. Absolutely incredible. Now, the language used that we just read is designed to push ahead into a whole bunch of other stories that had yet to take place, but that we now look back on with a closed Bible, meaning we're not adding more scriptures. What what God did that day, he'd already done something rather similar, and he would do it again and again and again. Consider, for example, that in Genesis 1, in the very beginning, we're told that there was water over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering. The Hebrew word for spirit and the Hebrew word for wind are the exact same term. And Genesis 1 goes on to tell us what happened to that land. The land emerged, it came up out of the water as God parted the sea. Genesis 1, 9 says that God gathered the waters together and let the dry land appear. Then he created the earth where his people, his image bearers, would dwell. Later in the story of God's work, humanity had gone from bad to worse to worst. And so God sent the waters of judgment. And in the fury of unceasing rain, God rained down his just wrath. And everyone was wiped out, except for one family, one large family in a boat. In Genesis chapter 8, we read that God made a wind, again the same word, to blow over the earth and the waters subsided and dry land emerged. God had decreated, if you will, what he had made. And with the blowing of that wind, he caused land to appear yet again. And onto that land walked Noah, his family, and the animals, and they all got a fresh start. It was a sort of miniature new creation. And then we reach this story here in Exodus chapter 14. So do you see what's happening? God is again causing the wind to blow, the waters to part, land to emerge, that his new people might go and have a new beginning as the people of God. They walked out by faith into a kind of evident, demonstrative, seen salvation. In fact, just like in the one singular event with Noah, where the waters brought both judgment and salvation, the same thing happened in the Red Sea. 
the waters brought judgment, and the holding of those waters brought salvation. Friend, if you struggle with the reality that scriptures paint that God is a God of judgment, then you simply must see that judgment and salvation go hand in hand. They're they're two sides of the same coin. Evil that day faced the waters of judgment, and yet God in His grace caused a people to walk ahead redeemed. But it doesn't even stop there. Fast forward to Joshua chapter 3. The, this generation that passed through the Red Sea, we'll see in the rest of Exodus, most of them were far from faithful. And so they didn't make it into the promised land, actually. But the next generation did as God again poured forth mercy. And they reached the Jordan River just at the peak of flood season when it would swell way beyond its banks. And they would have to cross over that river into into the land that God would give them. And when the Ark of the Covenant and feet of the priest touched the water at the very last possible moment, those waters were held. And God's people again crossed through on dry ground into a new life, a new place with Him. I'm not very smart, but it seems like the same stuff keeps happening. Later, the prophet Isaiah would come. And over and over and over in that exceedingly difficult book of Isaiah, Isaiah says, there's going to be another exodus. Not a not an exact repeat, actually a 2.0, a better one, an exodus that wouldn't be merely out of rescue from a taskmaster, but out of sin and death, a, a rescue that would last forever. And he uses new exodus kind of language to describe that. Like there'd be a new creation. Listen to just one place. This is Isaiah 43. Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariots and horses, army and warrior. They lie down. They cannot rise. They're extinguished. They're quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things. Consider the things of old. So, What we're talking about today, yeah, not all that impressive. That's what he's saying. Something better is coming. Behold, I'm going to do a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. What is he talking about? Over and over and over, Isaiah says these kinds of things. Using language reminiscent of the first exodus, he clearly says a better exodus is coming. And hundreds of years later, after longing and aching and praying, out from Egypt, 
came a man named Jesus. And as he began his public ministry, what did he do? He entered the waters of his baptism, fully identifying, immersing himself with the people of God. And then, where did he go? Well, of course, he went into the wilderness. And for 40 days and 40 nights, he faced all the kinds of temptations that one could face. And yet, unlike the Israel we'll be studying for the next several months, Jesus never, never failed. He never feared. He never doubted God. He never fell into sin. He took God at his word. This was the beloved son in whom God is well pleased. We'll see in Exodus that this people passed through what the New Testament calls their baptism. And in the Red Sea, they made it through, but later they failed God. They broke covenant, but Jesus didn't. That's because Jesus is the true and better Israel. And that meant that it's no surprise at all that Jesus would then become the epicenter of God's most important, lasting, redemptive work. And so in the Gospels, Jesus said and things are said about him that just cause your brain to explode if you make these connections. He said things in his transfiguration or they were said about him Jesus referred to his death as his baptism. He referred to his death as his exodus. And beloved, when Jesus was nailed to the cross, as he hung there as the substitutionary sacrifice for sinners, his very outstretched arms were bringing about our forever exodus our forever redemption. Christians are not merely people who've been rescued from the fury of Pharaoh. No, we've been rescued from the just judgment of God. Beloved, as Jesus passed through the waters of judgment, he did so so that you don't have to. He bore the weight of the crashing waters of wrath that you might forever be one walking on dry ground. You see, the parting of that Red Sea is a historical fact. It's a tremendous moment at a particular time where God did something that can only be explained by God. He's the cause. And yet that event isn't the ultimate event of rescue. It's, it's in miniature. What happened just outside Jerusalem at Calvary, where Jesus took the waters of judgment that you might know only dry ground with God forever, that you might walk in new life as his people. You're not a shouting people, but this is a good moment. This is incredible. The judgment and salvation at the sea solidified the deliverance of God's people. 
He'd already rescued them. Right? I mean, it was a finished work. And yet, he wanted them to see it. He wanted there to be proof. No question. No doubt. Just like in the resurrection, Jesus was brought back by the Father that there might be demonstrative proof that that sacrifice was acceptable. There'd be no question that we would see the salvation we have in an empty tomb. God is forever victorious over sin, death, and the devil for all his own. That all of us who know him might walk in newness of life with him forever. Church, the message of the Bible couldn't be any clearer. Like a song that starts soft and crescendos at its highest point. The Exodus is the beginning of this great song of salvation. And the truth is that the Lord triumphs gloriously on behalf of his people for his glory. What you need, the victory you need salvifically, you cannot rot. Not by stopping bad things and starting good ones. You only need to be silent and see the salvation that Jesus has brought. When all hope seems lost, when we're stuck between the sea on the one hand and the armies of Pharaoh on the other, at what feels like the last possible moment, God brings salvation. And he brings it again and again and again and again and again. Beloved, your salvation is not a one-time thing. God is sanctifying you every day. He's saving you over and 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 over. Forever holding the waters of judgment because they've already been spent on Christ. Now, why does he do that? Well, in ways that couldn't be clearer. Because he says it so many times. God does this for his glory. Salvation is ultimately about God. And God's glory shines brightest in his judgment and in his salvation. The two go hand in hand. If this language of God bringing judgment, and if this picture of Egyptian soldiers flailing and then drowning in the sea is bothersome to you, as you consider that God orchestrated this, it didn't just so happen, however much that might trouble you, and whatever questions that might, in fact, leave unanswered, make a beeline to the cross, because the ultimate act of judgment 
of God fell on the very Son of God. So committed is he to showing grace and mercy that he absorbed in himself the just judgment we deserve. And so now with me, see, they've crossed from the west over to the east. The people of God are standing on the other side, on the new shore. How do they respond? What do they do? Well, no doubt for a few moments, they simply stood in awe, said nothing. We're astonished. But then, they couldn't stay all that silent for all that long. In fact, they busted out a tune. And fascinatingly, it's the first recorded song of the people of God. Look with me at verse 1 of chapter 15. Then... Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I'll read it. (laughs) I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he has thrown in the sea. The Lord is my strength in my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea. His chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, this is a a symbol of power. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury, and it consumes them like stubble. At the blast, this is the same word, wind, the same word, spirit. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up, the floods stood in a heap, the deep congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil, my desire shall have its fill, I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them, they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O God, among the gods? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. You stretched out your hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab, All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. These are the peoples the the Israelites will come to in order as they head toward the promised land. 
into it itself. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still a stone. Tell your people, O Lord, pass by. Tell the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh and his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. This is the song of the redeemed, the first proclaiming in song recorded in the Bible. The song that was spontaneous, a spontaneous eruption of praise as they saw and considered what God had done, what God had done that they did not deserve that they could never have done for themselves. They deserve to be in the waters too. And yet God in his gracious mercy had chosen to rescue, to redeem his own and to bring them out. And all they could do after being silent and watching was praise. All they could do was sing. Salvation, you see, is the birthplace of song. If you look carefully at this song, the first 12 verses, we could just call them victory past. They're looking at what God had just done. It's finished. They're praising him in light of it. And then they did in song what they had failed to do on the other side of the sea. When they saw Pharaoh coming, they forgot what God had done. And they panicked in fear. And they didn't consider how God could deliver them in the future. But in that second half of the song in verses 13 to 18, they sung of victory future. They sung of how God was going to redeem them and rescue them again and again and again. They learned a lesson, at least at this point. And they sang it in the past tense, like it's already done. Can't we do that? Christian, is there anything you will ever face that will separate you from the love of God? Romans 8 says in the most emphatic way, no. No. What a moment standing on those shores that would have been to behold. And yet, isn't that what we do every time we get together? Isn't that what we do in song? Aren't we seeing together the salvation that God has brought us? Ought we be no more emphatic, joyful, happy, demonstrative at the salvation we have seen? 
This song will be sung again. The last recorded song in the Bible, Revelation chapter 15, reaches back and grabs Exodus 14 and 15 and sings it again. Sings it in the most incredible way. Revelation 15 says, And they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, the song of the Lamb, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. We'll all sing that song one day. And so right now, what are we doing? Well, we're living between the song of Moses, past, and the song of Moses and the Lamb to come. We sing between these songs. We're just part of a great, massive cantata. Rejoicing together every time we assemble at the salvation God has brought and will continue to bring over and over and over and over. It's incredible, isn't it? Are there troubles in the world? Yes, but sing to them because you have been redeemed. What ought we take away from Exodus 14 and 15? Well, the lessons are many. Let me very quickly give you three, and then we will see baptism and sing together. Number one, God triumphs gloriously. His victories total. The Red Sea crossing confirmed the strong, single-handed, mighty deliverance of God. And in the same way, the resurrection confirms the single-handed, mighty, once-for-all victory of God. We need not fear. At the precise moment, the Egyptian god, Ra, or Ray, should have risen to rescue the people. He didn't come. But God came, and God rescued his own. Jesus rose on that third day, delivering his people forever. We need not fear anything, anyone, ever, except live in an awe of God. Part of our church membership is helping each other remember that. To turn from fear and to trust God. To do it together. When you're afraid, call a brother and sister and ask them to pray and stand with you. Number two, God keeps his redeemed. Church, the Passover and Exodus had already delivered the people of God. The finished work was already done. But God is zealous that his people would see their salvation. And so, he brought them through the Red Sea, orchestrating a seemingly hopeless moment. He he put them into that moment. And Christian, God will do so to you again and again and again. You will find yourself in hardship that there's no way out if you rely on yourself. 
But if you just be silent and watch and pray, the waters will part again and land will emerge. How? I don't know. But he does. God keeps his redeemed. Finally, number three, God saves for his glory. Friend, the bigger your God, the better your experience of living this life will be. Our God is so big, strong and so mighty, there's nothing our God cannot do. I chose a small one to sing. (laughs) May your life, may our shared life together, may everything be about his glory. May it be about pointing to him. Like only God could orchestrate, today we have a baptism in our first gathering and a baptism in our second gathering. And in both, we will see one pass into the waters to picture with Jesus' death under the water, the waters of judgment, and then coming out again, resurrection to new life with Christ. And in this public proclamation of faith, these two will identify themselves with God and with us. And so let's pray, let's rejoice, and then let's stand up and sing like we mean it. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you for this incredible passage, and we thank you for the salvation that you have brought. We ask you that as we watch this baptism, it would mean more to us than perhaps anyone we've ever observed before. And it would encourage not only the one being baptized, but all who observe. And that we would remember passing through those waters as well. And I pray specifically if there's anyone here who has trusted you but has not obeyed you in baptism, that today you would uplift them and encourage them and inspire them to that end that they might do the same soon. We pray all this in the powerful name of our Redeemer. Amen.